All right, let's get started. We're we're up to Leviticus 15 in the first 14 chapters of Leviticus. We talked about the rules and regulations for the sacrifices for the priests and how the priests foreshadow us. A lot of these things in Leviticus are shadows of things that have now been revealed to us. So we see in the high priest, we see Jesus. In the priests, we see ourselves. And even in the dietary restrictions that we looked at last time, uh, recently, the dietary restrictions, there are some things that are that are, that are uh, spiritual lessons for us too, between distinguishing between clean and unclean. And then last time we looked at things related to childbirth, which tie into the story of the birth of Jesus in the New Testament, and also leprosy of the skin, the infectious diseases, and garments, and the house mold and mildew, things like that. Leprosy, of course, is, is a physical representation of the spiritual reality of sin. It spreads and it's dangerous and you've got to get rid of it. You've got to completely eradicate it from the house and, uh, and be cleansed. So we're going to pick up in Leviticus 15. And as I mentioned earlier... Uh, this particular lesson comes with a warning that some of the material may not be suitable for everybody, and so parental advice, parental guidance is and discretion is advised regarding regarding children. Is one of the things we're doing expository teaching is that it forces me to go places that I would never, ever go on my own. And this is one of those times. I think this is probably more uncomfortable teaching this lesson than maybe anything I've taught in the last five years. And the reason is because it has to do with procreation. It has to do with things having to do with, 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 with sex and, and body parts and things that come out of your body, things like that. Uh, and, and the background that I came from, now, now some people in the room here are from uh, farming communities. And when you're around animals and farms, it, the whole process of life and death and birth is, is, is all out there right in front of you. So it's a much more natural way to be introduced to these things. I didn't grow up in a farming community. I grew up in a small town. And I remember my mother telling my father, have you had the talk with your oldest son yet about where babies come from? And uh, my father said, no, he had. My mother put him up to it. So he came into the room, looked very, very flustered. He blurted out one or two sentences very nervously, turned red and left the room. And I had no idea what he was talking about. So... (laughs) So this is, this is what was handed down to me. Of course, I laughed and thought it was funny at the time, but then 30 years later, I'm in this situation where I have children who are teenagers and I've got to deal with it myself. So uh, don't, if, you know, if, you're, if your parents are a little nervous, uh, you may be there someday yourself. Years ago, I was reading through the Anonycine Fathers, and it started Volume 1. I was reading in Volume 2, and I reached a, a section by uh, it's Clement of Alexandria, a work called The Instructor. When Clement of Alexandria veers off and talks about all different kinds of things. Uh, and uh, uh, someone said about him, he has the, the, the wonderful habit of, of being unable to stick with any one subject for very long. He, he just jumps from sub, some topic to topic. And, and when I was reading in volume two, and I, I got to page 259. And the text changed from English into Latin. 
And for the next five pages, it was all in Latin. Next, and I was thinking, now why in the world? Everything else is in English. Why do they put this in Latin? And then I started looking at some of the words in Latin. I realized it was because it had to do with sex. So he didn't want any children to read it. So he just translated into Latin. His attitude was, if you're not old enough to know Latin, you have no business reading this anyway. So, so uh, unfortunately, growing up, uh, when I went to high school, I was in the first class that didn't have to in my Catholic school take Latin. So I couldn't read what he what he wrote, but I knew I could tell from the words what it was talking about, what the general subject was. So, unfortunately, I don't have the ability to give this part of the of the series in Latin, so we're going to have it in English. So please bear with me. But I'm I'm a little bit uncomfortable to to a lot uncomfortable talking about some of these things. Now I'm going to switch from everything we've we've covered so far has been coming out of the Orthodox Study Bible which is really graphic in this particular passage in, in Leviticus 15. So I'm going to switch back to the New King James, which is not, not as graphic, but it's still pretty, pretty, uh, pretty bracing. And for that, for that reason, I'm a little more comfortable uh, the way it's worded in the New King James. And, and the other reason is this was one particular term in there where they... I think in the New King James, it's more—it's a more general translation rather than a more specific one that they do in the Orthodox Study Bible, and I'll explain more about that in a minute. So let's start Leviticus 15. I'm going to read verses 1 to 15, and I'll be reading from the New King James. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this shall be his uncleanness in regard to his discharge, whether his body runs with the discharge or his body is stopped up by his discharge. It is his uncleanness. Every bed is unclean on which he who has the discharge lies, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. He who sits on anything on which... He who has the discharge sat shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean till evening. He who touches the body of him who has the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean till evening. If he who has the discharge spits on him who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean till evening. Any saddle on which he who has the discharge rides shall be unclean. Whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean till evening. He who carries any of these things shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean till evening. Whomever the one who has the discharge touches and has not rinsed his hands in water, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean till evening. The vessel of earth that he who had the discharge touches shall be broken, and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. Then he who has a discharge is cleansed of his discharge. Then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing, wash his clothes, bathe his body in running water, and then he shall be clean. On the eighth day he shall take for himself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and come before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest shall offer them the one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, because of his discharge. All right, so that's 
And if you're reading along in the uh, Orthodox Study Bible based on Septuagint, it may read a little a little bit uh, a little bit uh, different from that regarding the discharge from his body. So it's saying it's, it's, if the, if a man has a discharge from his body, and of course the question I have is, what kind of discharge is he talking about here? And so I went back, and uh, I was I was looking. I've been the last few years I've been studying Greek, so I'm reading that the, the the Greek translation of Septuagint, which is the version that was used by the the church in the beginning, and the apostles you're generally quoting from. And and in there, there is a the word one of the words that's used to describe this, and it reminded me of a certain English word. See if you think of the same thing. It was. Gonerebs, all right? It's Gonerebs. Gonerebs, actually. Gonerebs. It reminded me of a certain English word, word, Gonerebs, and it reminded me of the word gonorrhea. Okay? So I'm thinking, I wonder if that's what he's talking about in here. I'd never heard that put before, but I'm just reading along. And so I went back to a Greek English lexicon of the of the of the Septuagint, and it said that the word that's used there, gonorrhea, can mean either a discharge of some fluid from the body. It could be a, a male a, a reproductive seed, or it could be blood, or it could be gonorrhea. So, uh, and I thought, well, that's pretty wild. Which is a sexually transmitted disease that often has a discharge associated with it. So, right. Mm. So, uh, and then I was thinking, well, is this just the Septuagint? I went back and I looked at a, a Jewish encyclopedia, and there's a quote that was in there, which I was quite surprised to find. It's and it says Leviticus 15 covers several topics. Verses 2 to 15 state the laws concerning. Uh, a man with an abnormal genital discharge often and probably correctly translated as gonorrhea. Okay, so I thought, wow, that's, I learned something new there. For multiple reasons, it, it very well may be that that's what he's talking about, is the discharge from a sexually transmitted disease. Uh, but I can't prove that, but there's a number of things that, that point to that. The man who has this problem is told that he is unclean while it persists, and basically anything he touches, anything he sits on, any bed that he lies on, uh, is going to become unclean. He has to keep from touching other people. And, and then after this condition goes away, he has to wait seven days and wash in water, and on the eighth day to bring a sacrifice to the temple, and the priest will make atonement for him. So let's think about this. Is, is there anything that we could possibly learn from this? Leprosy, as we talked about last time, many of the early Christians saw leprosy as a figure for sin. Okay, In that it spreads, it makes a person unclean, you have to completely get rid of it from your body, from the house, whatever. So it's a general term, leprosy is a foreshadowing of sin or a type of sin. And after all, it, it says in... In Colossians, that these things in the law were shadows of things that have now been realized. So if leprosy is a foreshadowing of sin, what do you think gonorrhea might be a foreshadowing of? Sins associated with sex. That's what I'm thinking, okay? 
And it says, you, so it's a particular, after, after hitting sins in general, foreshadowing the sins in general, he, he now appears to be focusing in on, on things in, in a foreshadowing sense of things that are associated with a reproduction and, and, and our, that part of our body. Uh, and it reminds me, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You know, all sin is bad. All sin separates us from God. But Paul explained to the Corinthian Christians that there's something beyond that about sexual sin. While all sin is damaging, that there's something particularly destructive about sexual sin that deserves special attention. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. Uh, Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world or the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since you'd need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or an extortioner. Do not even eat with such person." For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So that's the, he starts off the beginning of the list with sexual immorality, and this is following on with what he's starting, starting off with in, in 1 Corinthians 5. is talking about the sin of sexual immorality that's taking place inside the church. And so he's reminding of that. And then in chapter 6, starting in verse 9, Paul says, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought into the power of any. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one in spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin a man does is outside his body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Do you not know your body is the temple, the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So, sin of sexual morality is a sin not only against the spirit, but against, against the, the body also. And he talks specifically here about the sexual sins, about fornication, which is sex between two people, neither one of them are married. Adultery, where someone, where one or both of them are married to another person, of 
of homosexuality and sodomy, which is sex between uh, 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 two women with each other or sex between with two men with each other. So he's addressing these things. And, and in the world in Corinth, a lot of these things were not considered to be sinful in the pagan world, that this is the way people lived back in Greece at that time. This is the way people lived in Europe. And he's saying... You came out of those sins. Many of you were involved in that kind of lifestyle, but you were washed. You became members of Christ. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. You need to honor God with your body. You can't possibly take your body and unite it with someone else in a sexually immoral relationship. So he says, flee sexual immorality. The picture I have in my mind when he says flee sexual immorality is the picture... In Genesis of Joseph, Joseph is a single man, and he is tempted by Potiphar's wife. She sends all the other servants out, and she grabs hold of him and says, Come, come and sleep with me. Come have sex with me. And he runs out. He flees from the temptation of sexual immorality. He doesn't even want to be around it. And that's the attitude that I want to have towards any type of sexual temptation or sin. It starts with, you know, the Internet. The Internet is a, is a massive avenue, particularly for men, in the areas of sin and pornography and lust. It's, it's just, a, just a click or two away. You've got, you got to have an attitude. I'm going to flee from that. I'm going to run away from it. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to have the intensity that Joseph had and run the other direction. He, he ran and left his clothes behind. That's how serious he was. He didn't want to be left in a situation where he was going to be tempted because he understood what a horrible sin that would be. Against How can I sin against my Lord by doing such a thing? So, so this is a reminder to me about all sin is dangerous. It's all like leprosy. It's all like mildew. It takes over and defiles the, and defiles the house. But there's something, there's something even worse about sexual sin and the damage that it causes. I mean, the good news, he says, such as, some, such as were some of you. So even though, even people who have come out of that background, they may have to deal with the scars of that from their past, but we have been, you can be washed, you can be sanctified Amen. and made holy, Amen. no matter which of those sins you were involved in in the past. So I'd encourage, this is a good opportunity, take inventory of your life in this area. And if you're struggling in this area, in any area, it's better to kill the, the cub than the full-blown blown, grown lion. Okay, it's easier. So if you're struggling in this area, find a trusted brother for a brother or a sister for a sister and get open and confess it and get it out on the table to be a clean vessel that God can use. Let's pick it up in, in uh, Leviticus 15, starting verse 16. Leviticus 15, 16. And if any man has an emission of semen, and he shall wash all his body in water and be unclean until evening. And any garment and any leather on which there is semen shall be washed with water and shall be unclean until evening. Also, when a woman lies with a man, there is an emission of semen, they shall bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Okay, uh, verse 19. If a woman has a discharge, and the discharge from her body is blood, she shall be set apart seven days. Whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything she lies on during her impurity shall be unclean. Everything she sits on shall be unclean. Whoever touches 
her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Whoever touches anything she sat on shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean till evening. If anything is on her bed or anything on which she sits when she touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. If any man lies with her at all so that her impurity is on him, she shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days other than at the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity, it shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and whatever she sits on shall be unclean as the uncleanness of her impurity. Whoever touches those things shall be unclean. He shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, then she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and bring them to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the priest shall offer the one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for the discharge of her uncleanness. Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in the uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. This is the law for one who has a discharge, and for him who emits semen and is unclean thereby, and for her who is indisposed because of her customary impurity, and for one who has a discharge, either man or woman, and for him who lies with her who is unclean. All right. Uh, let's, let's take those topics one at a time. The Jewish encyclopedia I was looking at in there, they said that basically they broke it down and says that there are five different things that are addressed here. Verses 2 to 15, as we already talked about, it's an abnormal genital discharge that, that, that they said is often and probably correctly translated as gonorrhea. This is what it said in the Jewish Encyclopedia. So this is not inspired, but it's a, this is a, give, give you an idea. It says verses 16 and 17. It says, with a man who uh, has a, a, a natural release of, of uh, his seed, verse 18, it refers to uh, uh, a husband and wife getting together and what, what results from that. Verses 19 to 24 is the laws concerning a woman during her monthly cycle. Once every 28 days or so, a woman goes through a cycle. And uh, so where she's, she's purged out uh, the, the, the normal, uh, normal buildup inside of her. If she doesn't conceive, then she, she purges that out once a month, typically, but it varies from person to person. That's from 19 to 24. And then verses 25 to 30 is a woman who has a discharge uh, from that area, but not at the time of her regular period or its pro prolonged period of time. Okay, so those are the different discharges that it's talking about. Uh, and one thing I noticed particularly in here that the last one that it's talking about, a woman who has a discharge that is not part of her regular period, and 
the details of her uncleanness. It says every bed she lies on, anything she sits on becomes unclean. Any one who touches any of those things will be unclean. Right? And and already it says she's not so she's not supposed to touch touch anybody or anything and that people will become unclean as a result of that. And then after she's cleansed of her discharge, after it's finished, she has to wait seven days, bring an offering to the priest who'll make atonement for her. And that made me think of a certain story in the New Testament that's mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There was a woman who had a flow of blood that lasted for 12 years. So she's in this category here. She would be a woman, think about this woman, under the law of Moses, a Jewish woman, for 12 years, anything she sat on would be unclean. Anything she touched would be unclean. Anybody, anybody who sits on what she sat on or slept on is going to become unclean. And she's not supposed to touch anybody for 12 years. So let that sink in what she was going through. And now let's go back and look at the story of this woman whose condition is described right here. Let's turn to the the account of Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. This woman in the exact situation that's mentioned here in Leviticus 15. So it was, when Jesus returned, that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of a synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had only one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind, and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you. And you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceive power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him, and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So think about that. This woman had been bleeding for 12 years and she spent everything she had on doctors and nobody could heal her. Nobody could help her. And she hears about Jesus. There's a whole crowd thronging around him. He's on his way to someplace else and she somehow gets in there and touches his robe. And Jesus realizes with a crowd pressed around him, somebody just touched me. And this is somebody touched him in an unusual way that he felt power going out from him. And this woman, who it would appear on the surface 
is breaking the law of Moses. Because the law of Moses says, if you're bleeding, you're unclean. And you're not supposed to touch anybody or anything. And anything that you even sit down on or lie on that somebody else touches is going to make them unclean. So here she was, boldly going up and touching the robe of Jesus. So, is she breaking the law of Moses by what she's doing? Early Christian writer Tertullian is writing in the early 200s, and he talks about this story in a work called Against Marcion. And he's, he's addressing this question. And there's things you can learn about God, about Jesus, and the law of Moses from his explanation of the story. So it's not, he's not writing under inspiration, but I thought he had a very interesting perspective on the story. So I'm going to read from what Tertullian said. He said, Jesus is touched by the woman who had an issue of blood. He knew not by whom. Who touched me, he says, when his disciples alleged an excuse. He even persists in his, in his assertion of ignorance, somebody's touched me, he says, and advances some proof, for I perceive virtue has gone out of me. What says our heretic? Could Christ have known the person? Why did he speak as if he was ignorant? Why? Surely it was to challenge her faith and to try, meaning to test her fear. Precisely as he had once questioned Adam, as if in ignorance. Adam, where are you? What's that? That's, that's That's in Genesis 3. Son of God appeared in many different Many different times and places, it's impossible to see the Father. So the real Christians understood when somebody's seeing God or God's walking around, that must be the Son of God, who is divine. It can't be the Father who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one sees or can see. So Tertullian says, this is basically this is just like when the Lord said to Adam, where are you? As if, as if he didn't know, okay? As if, as if God didn't know where Adam was. Why did he say, where are you? The same reason, why did Jesus say, who touched me? Not because he didn't know who touched him. He wanted to challenge the person to come into the light. And he, so he says, thus you have both the creator excused in the same way as Christ, and Christ acting similarly to the creator. But in this case, he acted as an adversary to the law. And therefore, as the law forbids contact with a woman with an issue, he desired not only that the woman should touch him, but that she should heal her. Her touch, at least, was an act of faith. And if of faith in the Creator, how could she have violated His law when she was ignorant of any other God? Whatever her infringement of the law amounted to, it proceeded from and was proportionate to her faith in the Creator. How can these two things be compatible? That she violated the law and violated it in faith, which ought to have restrained her from such a violation. I'll tell you how her faith was above all. It made her believe that God preferred mercy even to sacrifice. She was certain that her God was working in Christ. She touched him therefore, not as a holy man simply, nor as a prophet, whom she knew to be capable of contamination by reason of a human nature. 
but as very God, whom she assumed to be beyond all possibility of pollution by any uncleanness. She therefore, not without reason, interpreted for herself the law as meaning that such things as are susceptible of defilement become defiled, but not so God, whom she knew for certain to be in Christ. But she recollected this also, that what came under the prohibition of the law was ordinary and usual issue of blood which proceeds from natural functions every month and in childbirth, not that which was the result of disordered health. Her case, however, was one of long abounding ill health for which she knew the succor of God's mercy was needed and not the natural relief of time. And thus she may evidently be regarded as having discerned the law instead of breaking it. This will prove to be the faith which was to confer intelligence likewise. If you will not believe, says the prophet, you shall not understand. That's from Isaiah 7, 9. When Christ approved of the faith of the woman, which simply rested in the Creator, he declared by his answer to her that he was himself the divine object of faith of which he approved. That's in, against Marcion chapter tw- uh, 21, book 4, chapter 21, and I see Fathers, volume 3, pages 379 and 380s. The points are made by Tertullian. First, Amen. when Jesus asked the question, who touched me? It wasn't because he didn't know who touched him. It was because he wanted to test the person who he was challenging to come forward. Who touched me? She she came forward trembling. She she admitted it. And it was my question Adam, like he didn't know where Adam was. That's right. So it was the same same question, sort of the same question asked Adam. So it's not not the ignorance on the part of God, but it's a test of us. The second thing was was the question about was it against the law of Moses to touch Jesus? Tertullian makes a case why it was okay for her to do that despite what it says in the law. He says touching her was an act of faith in the Creator and God who made the law. And that she, in reasoning things through, he, he assumes that Tertullian is saying that she had a deeper understanding of law. She understood the meaning of the statement in Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So this was what God is looking for. God is looking for mercy and not just sacrifice and and obedience to the outward laws. He also says she understood that since Christ was divine, he could not become defiled like a prophet or a normal human being could. So she could touch him. It's impossible for Christ, who is divine, who is God in the flesh, to be polluted by any human being touching him. And she was saved and healed by her great faith. So uh, I want to close with taking a look at something, at the question, do any of these, these, these rules still apply to Christians that were talked about here? In Acts 15, there was a council in Jerusalem where the apostles got together and they said, Gentiles are becoming Christians. Do they have to follow the law of Moses or not? They said, well, the conclusion was just four things that they had to follow. They had to, they didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to follow the other parts of the law of Moses. So this is not part of it. 
Colossians 2, it says, We are no longer subject to the regulations. Do not touch. Do not handle. That's what these regulations, don't touch this. You can't touch that. You can't handle that. You can't touch touch uh, people who have been contaminated or a dead person, things like that. So, so from the scriptures, from the New Testament, we can... We can conclude that these things don't apply to us anymore. The do not touch, do not handle regulations of the Old Testament. But this question came up in the early church is that there were some people who read Leviticus and read this chapter and were wondering. And among other things, they're wondering, you know, women during their regular monthly period, is it okay? It may seem crazy to us, but they were, were they're wondering things like, if, if I'm unclean, is it okay for me to touch the Bible and read the Bible? If I'm unclean, is it okay for me to take the Lord's Supper? Is, is, are these things okay? And in apostolic constitutions, it says for people who are concerned about questions like this, he answers the question, but to me it gives more of an insight and appreciation for what this is all about. So I'm going to read a, a quote from there. It says, If any persons... Keep to the Jewish customs and observances concerning the natural emission and nocturnal pollutions and the lawful conjugal acts. That's between a husband and wife. Let them tell us whether in those hours or days when they undergo any such thing, they observe not to pray or touch a Bible or partake of the Eucharist. And if they own it to be so, it's plain they are void of the Holy Spirit, which always continues with the faithful. For concerning Holy Spirit, person, Solomon says that everyone may prepare himself that when he sleeps it may keep him, when he arises it may talk with him. For if you think, O woman, when you are seven days in separation that you are void of the Holy Spirit then you better not die suddenly and depart without the Holy Spirit or without hope in, hope in God or else you must imagine that the Spirit is always inseparable from you as not being in a place. But if you stand in need of prayer in the Eucharist and the coming of the Holy Ghost as having been guilty of no fault in this matter, for neither lawful mixture nor childbearing nor menstrual purgation nor nocturnal pollution can defile the nature of man or separate the Holy Spirit from him, nothing but impiety and unlawful, unlawful practice can do that. For the Holy Spirit always abides those that are possessed of it, so long as they are worthy. And those from whom it is departed, it leaves them desolate and exposed to the wicked spirit. Now every man is filled either with the holy or the unclean spirit, and it's not possible to avoid one or the other unless they receive the opposite spirits. For the comforter hates every lie, and the devil hates all truth. But everyone that is baptized agreeably to the truth is separated from the diabolical spirit and is under the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit remains in him so long as he is doing good and fills him with wisdom and understanding and suffers not the wicked spirit to approach him but watches over all his goings. Therefore, O woman, if you say in the days of your separation you're void of the Holy Spirit, then you're unfilled with the unclean one. For if by neglecting to pray and reading you would invite him into you, though he were unwilling, 
For this spirit of all others loves the ungrateful, the slothful, the careless, and the drowsy, since he himself by ingratitude was distempered from every evil mind, and therefore deprived by God of his dignity, having rather chosen to be the devil than an archangel. Uh, so he, he continues. He says, Neither the burial of a man, nor a dead man's bone, nor a sepulchre, sepulchre nor any particular sort of food, nor the nocturnal pollution can defile the soul of man. Only impiety towards God and transgression and injustice towards one's neighbor. Uh, and then he, he concludes here a little later. It says, They have honored marriage and called it blessed, since God has blessed it who join male and female together. And why Solomon somewhere says, A wife is suited to her husband by the Lord. And David says, your wife, Let your wife be like a flourishing vine in the sides of your house, your children like olive branches around about the table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears God. Therefore, marriage is honorable and comely, and the beginning of children pure. For there is no evil in that which is good. Therefore, neither is the natural purgation abominable before God, who has ordered it to happen to women within the space of 30 days for their advantage and healthful state, and who do less move about and keep usually at home in the house. Nay, moreover, even in the gospel, when the woman with a perpetual purgation of blood touched the saving border of the Lord's garment in hope of being healed, he was not angry with her, nor did he complain with her at all. But on the contrary, he healed her, saying, Your faith has saved you. So, basic lessons from this. There's no sin or spiritual uncleanness associated with the physical discharges that talks about in Leviticus 15. God made men and women the way that they are, and it's good. Uh, the natural function of men and women is good. Marriage is good. And relationships between a man, uh, uh, a husband and wife, uh, the physical relationships are good and holy in the eyes of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in all of us and makes us clean if we continue to walk in the light. Amen. And the things that will defile us are not the things it talks about in Leviticus like touching dead bodies or different bodily, uh, bodily emissions. The things that, that contaminate us and pollute us are, are sins, sins of the heart and sins of the flesh. And in closing, let us for always remember Jesus' attitude towards the woman who was bleeding for 12 years. He loved her and showed mercy and compassion on her and said, your faith has healed you. Amen. Amen.